This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 223. And the quote of the day is from Christian Kane, who said, In the entertainment business, the biggest gift you could ever get is not an Oscar, it's not a Grammy, it's longevity. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. And beyond, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. This is session 223. And if you want to check out the other sessions, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash podcast. They're all there, all 223 episodes. The most recent 50 or so are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that fun stuff. And this session is brought to you by Dream Symbols. And if you're looking to save some bread, check out Dream Symbols Recycling Package. So what that does is it allows you to bring in a broken symbol to a participating dealer and get money off of your next symbol, depending on how how big the symbol is that you're trading in. So if you bring in a 20-inch ride symbol, you're going to get 20 bucks off a new dream symbol or gong. They also take the old symbols and they make new uh, crop circles out of them and different things like that. So definitely check out the program at dreamsymbols.com. And then you can also find participating retailers who will let you trade in that symbol. Again, that's dreamsymbols.com and they are going to save you some bread and their symbols are high quality pro level symbols that are priced well below everybody else's prices. So definitely check them out. Dream symbols. Dot com. Now, the interview I have today is cool. This is my man, G-Love, and I have been listening to G-Love since high school. I mean, literally since like the, the 90s. So uh, great to have him. He's a Philly guy. I'm a Philly guy. We have a ton of mutual friends, and I uh, wanted to have him on here. One, because I always like to give a different perspective. That's why I've had keyboard players on here. That's why I've had you know other entrepreneurs. That's why I had Chase Jarvis from Creative Live to give a different perspective, still in the arts, still in the, the sort of creative entrepreneur space and things like that, in the entertainment business, in music, uh, but just give it a different perspective. So we talk about some drummers that he's played with who I've had on the podcast, Jeff Clemens, Chuck Treese. And also, uh, we just talk about longevity in the entertainment business, finding your own sound, and a bunch of different things. Just a, a really great interview. And again, I've been listening to, to uh, G-Love for such a long time. So it's great to have him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it with my man, G-Love. G, what's happening, man? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Hi, right, thanks for having me, Nick. Absolutely. It's great to have you because I'm a Philly guy. We have a, a ton of mutual friends. I've been listening to your music, God, since I was at least in high school. So it's uh, it's great to actually... I think we've actually met a few times. I think Mike Tyler introduced us at the Electric Factory years ago, but I don't expect you to remember oh, right that. On. But, but yeah, I think we got we got introed a long time ago. Uh, for... For everybody who's listening, and there's, they can go online, they can find out all about you. But for, but let's just build a little bit of context of sort of who you are, what you do, uh, you know, what you what you've been doing for this career, and just the quick, the quick thirty to forty five second little ex- explanation. All right. Well, um, I am a musician. Uh, I play the guitar and the harmonica, and I sing and I rap. Uh, my inspirations are based in the Delta Blues of people like Robert Johnson, Lightning Hopkins, uh, Mississippi, Fred McDowell, John Hammond, and also in Bob Dylan. Uh, and then also a lot of the hip hop greats like De La Soul, Tribe Cold Quest, 
KRS One, Eric B and Rockham, and others. Uh, born and raised in Philadelphia, in the city downtown, close to South Street. Uh, started playing, performing on the street at the age of 16. Uh, when I was 19, I moved. When I was 19, I wrote my first rap, which was um, basically the type of music which which was called hip hop blues. Um, and, and also when I was 19 and 92, I moved to Boston to become a street musician where I met my band, The Special Sauce. And, uh, in 1993, we had a record deal with Epic Records. Uh, our first release came out in 1994, which was the self-titled G Love and Special Sauce. And, um, that was a pretty successful record and that launched the touring career which is ongoing. Uh, so now the band is on the 24th year and we continue to tour internationally uh, doing about 100 to 150 shows a year. Um, and that's taken me to today where I'm driving from Boston to Cape Cod. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the best like 35 to 45 second wrap up I've ever, I've ever heard it. You may have done that before. All right, so I got to ask, what's your? So I'm a huge Eric B and Rockham fan. So what's your what's your favorite Eric B and Rockham tune? Well, I gotta say, paid in full. Oh, and that's the my reason. Is hands down my favorite. <laughs> hands down. The reason is, is I guess there's uh, I have a very personal reason, and then we could break the song down. But the personal reason is that I always love the song. And in 1992, that spring, I really hit the street hard as a street musician in Philadelphia. One night after my best night of uh, busking, I had made $60, uh, two cigarettes, one joint, and a can of beer. And I was having a great night on second in Lombard in Philadelphia. And towards the end of the night, I was riffing on a song, just kind of a two-chord blues riff that was a tune of mine called Days Like This, which was never recorded. Uh, at the end of it, I kept riffing, you know, you feel so good. And I started singing and rapping the lyrics for Eric B and Rock campaign in full. And that was a huge musical in my life. I kind of realized at that moment that there was no other white kid uh, playing the dobro and a blues riff and rapping. And I said, wow, I finally have discovered something completely original. And then later that week, I wrote my first rap, like official rap, which was called rhyme for the summertime and mm -hmm. at that point i really kind of identified my own style which would be the reason that we're talking today because i always say the most important thing is originality so that song was the catalyst for my whole career in a lot of ways that's amazing I, that's my i mean hands down is my favorite eric b and rock hem song did you do the thing at the end where he's like you go to your girl's house and i'll go to mine did you put that oh in yeah <laughs> i do it every time i do it every time and, and like I still, and just like talking about that song specifically, that's a great song because it it goes back to like a lot of '90s hip hop. It wasn't about a big chorus, right? Mm -hmm. It was just about a dope verse. And in a lot of ways, kind of how a lot of Bob Dylan songs are, it's not that you get to some kind of hook. Like for instance, if you look at the song, the times they are changing. 
yes, it does come back to that one refrain, which is the times they are changing, right? But mm-hmm. it's not like a hook, like we think of it now, where like um, most hooks of modern day pop songs are like eight or 16 bar, almost mini verses, right? You're talking about, uh, or even a ho- like a traditional pop hook, like Sweet Home Alabama, Sweet Home Alabama, where the sky's off the blue. Sweet home Alabama, Lord, I'm coming home to you. Like that's a four-bar chorus, right? It gets repeated, but mm-hmm. paid in full, there was no chorus. Zero. Right? It just says yeah. the last song, the last word of the rap goes, "It's a studio because I'm paid in full," and that's that's it. That's the payoff. Which is just that one little phrase. Right. So I always thought, as a songwriter, I always thought, hey, you know, that's pretty cool. You don't have to have some kind of hook. You just have to have the strength of the verses and the music and the message and the whole song, and then that that kind of um, that kind of makes do with it. And like for instance, also subterranean homesick blues, that has no chorus. That just has verses. Right. So I always like songs like that, like paid in full, that just have verses, no hooks. Mm-hmm. But I mean, your tunes, a lot of your tunes have have nice hooks. But now that you say that. Like a lot of your tunes don't. Oh, I'll say you're absolutely right. Like a song, like if you take two of the most famous songs from the first record, right, or three of them, like Blues Music, mm-hmm. that was our first single. That doesn't have a hook. That just has verses that end with Blues Music. Right. Right. Just saying that once or twice. And then Baby's Got Sauce, same thing. The verses, oh no, that has a hook, which is. You know, your baby, my baby's got sauce. Your baby ain't sweet like mine. She got sauce. Mm-hmm. Baby ain't sweet like mine. So that has like a two-bar repeating chorus. And cold beverage does too. I like cold beverage, yeah. I like, so that does have more of a traditional chorus. But the blues music, you know, that has no chorus. And gar- and like Garbage Man, which is the second tune on the record. Mm-hmm. Oh, that ha- that does have a chorus. So yeah, so I- I'd say... Maybe seventy five percent of my songs have a traditional chorus, but then the other twenty five percent, you know, don't really have a traditional chorus. Just a word that's said different times during the song, or just verses. Right, and it's interesting because now saying that, I mean, I guess I, I mean, I've noticed it listening to the music. I, you know, but like never really, really thought about it, and and you know, talked about it out loud. Like, oh, a lot of these don't have it, and a lot of these do have it. Um. Which is just an interesting concept, and the and the fact of like taking sort of the style that you've you've had for the last twenty five years. I mean, now that's not something you know that's totally different. But years ago, when you were when you started it, like I mean, when I first when I first heard you guys, I was like, this is like totally different than anybody else is doing now. I mean, twenty five years later, I think you got you still absolutely have a style when you put it on. I know it's you, or I know it's it's you guys in the band. But like, but years ago. I mean, there was nobody doing that kind of thing. And you mentioned finding your voice, being original. Uh, and for you, it was sort of like a light bulb moment. But what about other people who maybe don't have that light bulb moment? Do you have any advice for sort of trying to find your own sound and going down that road of, of finding your own sound? Well, I mean, I just say keep pushing to be original till you have that light bulb moment. You know what I mean? Or just mm-hmm. be so great at, reg- at writing a regular writing and performing kind of a regular, you know, song that it's 
undeniable. I mean, if you if you can, you don't have to be original if you can write the catchiest regular old song that's ever written. Right. You know what I mean? Or a whole bunch of them. And right. a lot of people don't. And there's, but if you do something original, then, or, you know, I don't know, we can break down so many different people, but I mean, deconstruct, I should say, but, um, you know, and these days, God, I mean, you know, listen, there's so much original, you know, it's funny, I, I've been out in the studio working with this guy, Cisco Adler in and Malibu, California, we're working on a project called Jamtown right now, which is a collaboration with Donovan Frankenrider and he and I. But Cisco also, like, I admire him because he's always has his finger on the pulse of, like, the younger generation. Because, you know, I'm 44 now. Right. We're getting to be where we have been at this point, the established artist for some years now. And then you see a lot of these kids coming up. So there was these two kids that he kind of coached along the way and one of the kid named Nash which is G-N-S-E-G-N-A-S-H and Nash has like a number one record right now with this song called I Hate You I Love You I Hate You I Love You and a lot of times if you hear that on the radio right now you might be hearing the remix but if you listen to the original version it's it's like it's the production on it is is digital right it's all like tracks not like mm -hmm. a live band, but it's a lot of the production on like a lot of the new people. It's it's very spacious and like uh, clean, wide open sound. Not a lot of layering. It's interesting. It's, it's very spacious. Is how I think about it. <laughs> but to me, that sounds kind of original because um, it's sparse. Like the music's like sparse, and right. then even though they're rapping, they're singing like da 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 da. And then they might even wait a couple bars and then be like, da, 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 da. you know what I mean? Right. It's like, wow, like, you know, we were always rapping, like, uh, stop. So, um, I, the only reason I bring it up is because I find people, you know, people are continuously able to find new ways of expressing themselves and original ways. Even though for me, you know, I push myself to be original and do different things and push ourselves, um, but I will say, you know, like if you you have a sound that you've developed and been developing over the years, and and that's what you do. So I I came up with my original thing 25 years ago, you know, and that's what I do. And by sticking with it, I'm still kind of being original. Like I was listening to the new Tribe Called Quest record uh, yesterday. My 15 year old son was playing it for me. Of course, he's heard it already, and I hadn't heard it yet. Right. So. Uh, he said, yeah, I'm not really feeling it that much. Well, I said, oh, it's kind of been getting a lot of good reviews. I want to hear it. And I put it on, and um, we only listened to two songs. One of them, I, I like them both. I mean, I'm a huge Tribe fan. I, I Me thought, too. I thought they were good. I didn't hear, like, a bugging out or, a, you know, a, like, a scenario like butter song. Right. They're just going to, like, rock like anything compared to anything on Low Theory. But, and one of the raps, was like Q-Tip was doing a flow and it, they had like the new rapper flow, like the triplet thing. Right. You know, and I was like, damn, I was like, I didn't really need to hear him do that style of rap. It's kind of ah. like, I picked it, I, I picked up on it right away. I was like, oh, Q-Tip's like doing that triplet thing. 
And right. I was like, I don't, I don't really want to hear him doing that. That's you want to hear him do like, his his thing? Yeah, and he did mostly his thing, but I was like, I didn't want to hear him do that. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that, you know, as an artist, there's always this sort of like, I don't want to say reinventing yourself, but like, but pushing new boundaries, trying to sound different than maybe everything that you've ever done or whatever. Like, I think lemonade sounds different than sugar. You know right. what I mean? And totally, they they sound like you, but they, I mean, and I, I, I know that one's a solo record and one's a, a band record, but I think that they sound, they sound different from from every aspect but it still sounds like you it's still like has that originality to it so i mean when, yeah. when you go into the studio are you thinking like oh i gotta do my thing or is that just what naturally comes out well i mean i when i go into the studio i'm thinking yeah i want to do my thing and i want to do my thing exactly what i'm doing right now and what i think it should be and you know what i think it should be and what it maybe should have been is not always <laughs> the right thing for the right time for what people want to hear but, I mean, I think that my kind of, one of my goals has always been, since the first record, like, we want to make a record how we believe the records that we love and cherish were made. And that's what means, whether that was John Lee Hooker's or um, Robert Johnson or uh, Rolling Stones or Dr. John or whoever it is, um, or like the hip-hop people even, um, wh whoever's it is, um, we want to be true to being in, this, being in the studio as a band and doing a live performance, or if we're making a hip-hop style record, like kind of do it in the style of the hip-hop records that we like. But, right. um, but like mostly we want to make records by being in the room, together recording singing and playing at the same time and going for magical takes and i think that's when we've been able to be at our best in the studio um i think like if you look at the difference between sugar and lemonade they're a lot different because most of the lemonade record was made like a hip-hop record even the live aspects of it were often looped mm -hmm. or you know um constructed as you would construct a hip hop record, meaning from the bottom drums, uh, right. the vocals where sugar was by and large, mainly everybody's in the room singing and playing, and there's not too many overdubs, right. if, if any at all, on some songs. So, huh. uh, that, my goal remains to kind of challenge ourselves to be so great in the studio at playing and catching a vibe that we go in and make a record in a couple of days or an afternoon. And this is where we're at now and having the songs be good enough that they can be recorded in a trash can and people still want to listen to them because they're great on their own in any way. That's right. the goal. Right. And get that sort of lightning in a bottle, capture it, put it on, put it on a record. And then when you play it live, it sounds the same way, you know, or pretty much the same too. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to be cognizant of your time, too, because I know we said we'd, we'd try to keep it sort of short. Um, but I want, just wanted to ask about longevity, too. I mean, you've 
you I, I feel like you've sort of had a a roller coaster ride of a career where you're sort of very in the public eye a lot and then you sort of go below the radar and then you pop back up and you but you've always sustained just this career for year. I mean, you've been doing this for 25 years. What would you what do you think is has led to a lot of your longevity and what advice do you have for other people who are trying to have a sustainable career going on? Well, I think you have to be patient and I think you have to love the music so much and I think you have to enjoy traveling and I think you have to um, have stamina and you have to have hustle and you have to want it and you have to want to work, you know, because without I say patience because there is no overnight success even the Rolling Stones or Jimmy Buffett or anybody that you look up to as a that's out there um, they still tour I mean the Rolling Stones and Jimmy Buffett they don't have to tour for money you don't think right but maybe they do because maybe they want to get their crew and band paid that have been with them for so many years but we don't know maybe they want to buy some some new house in the in the Bahamas we don't know but they continue to tour. And um, so there is no end. There is no finish line, right? Whether you get a Grammy or five Grammys or 100 million one, number one records, you're only going to be number one for those couple of weeks when your record's number one, right? So there's no definitive end, mm-hmm. right? So that's something to be cognizant about. Some I always try to impress upon my team. There is no, we're not, we're, continuously working towards playing great shows, playing for as many people as we possible, and yeah, making as much money as we can for every show. But there's no finish line. There's no like, oh, we're going to play a show so great or get paid so much money that we don't ever have to play again. Right? That's not... The music, the beautiful thing about it is that it's the journey, right? So it's every day of your life you get to pick up your instrument or driving down the road get to think about a song idea that pops in your head. Mm-hmm. And you get to travel the world continuously and make people happy. And that's our job is to make people happy. Mm-hmm. So it's just a can, you have, that's one thing to realize. Like whether you're riding in a van with, your buddies coast to coast or you're sitting on the street corner playing your music or you're headlining uh, the spectrum in Philadelphia. It doesn't matter because you're, you're still playing music, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's what you're there for. So can you get to a situation where it's more comfortable and cush? Yeah, I mean, of course, but you're still going to have to make it to the gig, whether you're driving in a van or a private, private plane, right. uh, you're still going to have to make sacrifices of your time and be away from home and your family, whether you're Bono or G-Love or the guy playing at, uh, you know, uh, the, the North Star Bar. Right. So there's like, there is no end line. So that's something to really keep cognizant about. And the other thing is like, you have to respect the stage, respect your fans and respect the fact that like yourself, like you have to put everything into every show. Right, you have to make sure that, like, when you hit the stage at night, you're ready to go. Right, you're rested, you're energized, you're inspired, and that's hard to maintain five nights a week for you know eight weeks in a row. Right. So you know you have to um, constantly be on, be able to keep your health and your mental and spiritual 
sides ready to go. And then you also have to be able to work with people. You have to be able to, if you're the band leader, you have to be able to lead your band and, and respect everybody's opinions, but still keep a hold of the general vision that you're trying to achieve. And mm-hmm. then you have to know how to run your crew and Again, respect. You can't be an asshole to your guitar tech or your bus driver because these guys have your back. So you gotta run your team of people. So, and then a lot of, and then one. I mean, I could go on like this forever, but a, a big point that a lot of people don't understand is um, you have to treat your your band like a small business and your your life as a small business, right? Mm-hmm. Because you yourself are the product that you're selling, right? So you have to run shit like it's a business. It's right. not just some band of a conduit for getting laid and getting fucked up and going to the next town. Like, yeah, you can do all that stuff for sure, but like, <laughs> treat it like a small business. Make sure you have budgets. Make sure that you have people that are on the other side that are handling your finances or handle themselves in such a way that you that it's organized so that's mm-hmm. like a big thing of it like running your band and your life like it is a business because if you want to be serious about it it's called show business you have no business you have no show right, right? <laughs> and that's something that I don't care and then you know a lot of guys and we're friends with both of them we're, I mean, <laughs> we're friends with, with, with some of them I know guys that uh, are amazing musicians all around the world and plenty in Philadelphia that uh, are spinning their wheels because they never had, they have every, they, they can play circles around people, they can write tunes around people, but they don't have a business sense to get right. them out of play in, in the local scene. And, mm-hmm. and like, and I've seen a ton of guys that are, that I consider geniuses. And yeah. it's really sad because most of the best musicians that I know have never made it. And a lot of musicians that I know that I didn't think too much about at all have made it to become million, 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 million sellers. Yeah. And because then it comes down to, you see the things that people that have made it to a certain level do. And there's things that people that have lost it mm-hmm. and never got to that level do. And then you can see what works and what doesn't. So, I've seen a lot of guys specifically like Philly area that guys that you and I both know and run around with that, that like are, it's the ego that kills them too. It's like they don't have the business sense and they don't have the, the humble added the humbleness or the humility to go and ask somebody for help. And you know, they're like, I'm the shit and I know everything. And it, it kind of gets in their way a lot. So yeah, it's it's... for sure. Like ego is a huge thing. And, and like, you know, you have to have and musicians, by and large are flaky people and musicians by and large are egotistical people because they're flaky because they're artists and they're dreamers and that's part of their you know personality makeup myself included and um they're egotistical because you have to have a certain amount of ego to write a song tell the world this is how you feel and to have the nuts to get on stage in front of people or on a street corner and sing about it right that takes serious nuts and yeah. And just ask anybody who can't do that, and they'll say, oh, my God, I can't believe that you can get on stage and do that. And so after a while, we say, well, that's the easiest thing ever. But right. really, it's not. You know? But, um, 
Yeah, I remember hearing that advice you know, before of like, if you ever get scared of being on stage, just remember that everybody out there in the crowd wishes they could do what you're doing right now. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and that comes down to like respecting that stage so much. I mean, I still ask anybody around me, like I am kind of a miserable person to be around before my show because uh, I am so kind of on edge and just anticipating being on stage and so focused I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be bothered with anything that's not going to lead me to having a great show. Like, you know, everything else has to go away so I can just get ready to mentally and physically and spiritually be ready to go on that stage because it's a heavy thing for me. Like yeah. I, I, and I, and it's one of those things I almost, it's a, it's a problem. I, I always have this feeling like, oh my God, what am I going to do when I get up there? And in a way, it's a beautiful thing because I think, oh my God, what am I going to do when I get up there? I don't feel like I have anything inside of me that can come out. And then all of a sudden you get on stage and all of this stuff pours out of you. And it's right. like, holy shit. And then after the show, I'm like a completely different person. Like, I'm like, all right, I want to hang with people. I want to party. I want to like talk to people. Like, now let's have that talk. But right. like before the show, before don't, bother don't come around. It's game day. Don't come around me. It's it's game time. Game it's game time prep. You know what I mean? Game, that's right. Game time. I don't want to hear about... I don't care. I don't care about anything that's going on in anybody's life, including my own, a half right. hour before I go on stage. Don't right. come talk to me. <laughs> well, keep that in mind if you ever run into him before the show. <laughs> <laughs> After the show, we're hanging all night. But uh, a half hour before the show, please, don't talk to me. <laughs> uh, so one more question about about drummers uh, specifically, what do you look for in drummers or what do you, what are some things that you see with drummers either that you've played with or, you know, that you've seen live uh, that you sort of are like, ah, maybe, maybe they could be working on this or maybe they could be working on that. Not necessarily from a technical standpoint, but love like how they can support a front man, how they can support a singer or, you know, the rest of the band. All right. Well, you know, you mentioned the two drummers and you're, I've talked, to both of them that have kind of played the most roles in my careers and those being uh, Jeff Clement and Chuck Treese. Chuck, I mean, I could talk for an hour about both of these guys, um, especially if neither one of them were going to hear it, but I'd talk for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I mean, both these guys have had such an impact on me. Um, And I guess I would start first with Jeff, just because he's been my drummer of the band for so long. So Jeff, you know, Jeff was 10 years, they're both 10 years older than me. Uh, They both were kind of big brother figures in a way, both Chuck and Jeff. I met Jeff when I became a street musician in Boston, and he really kind of, quote, discovered me and gave me just enough juice to get our thing going in Boston, which gave us just enough juice to get discovered out of Philadelphia and New York and get our live show together. So, Jeff, so what do I look for in a drummer? I guess Jeff is a really unique character because he's a great drummer. He has a very original sound. When he records, he sounds authentic in his pocket. So in a live performance, Sometimes I think he lacks energy, however, um, and pizzazz uh, and stamina. However, and those are three things I'll come back to that are very important. However, 
Jeffrey always sounds super authentic, and his pocket is always um, in a place where you could record it. A lot of drummers get so revved up when they play live that if you recorded it, it sounds too rushed. Right. Uh, right. And especially on a live recording, I think it's interesting to hear Jeff's drum recordings as opposed to other people that are great live on stage. Jeff is very authentic sounding, and he also has a producer's ear. So when I was, which was very helpful for me when we first met, because he was older and had a producer's ear, he was able to take my very raw songs and some of them kind of arrange them and some of them even put some new beats. And I think he enabled me, especially on our first record, to place where they ended up being, which they ended up being very successful. So, you know, to me, and of course, over the years, we've had a lot of ups and downs uh, emotionally between the two of us, which have at times interfered with our work. Um, however, now we're in a great place where um, I think we really know how to work together. I know what to expect from him on a live performance and in the studio. And, um, you know, I continue to enjoy Jeff's presentation and his quirkiness as a drummer and his finesse and his originality. And again, I think he's talked to a lot of drummers coast to coast and they'll tell you that Jeff was a big influence to them, especially from our first couple records. Mm-hmm. The sound he was able to achieve in the studio and the style of drumming that he brought and the loose thing that he brings is something that no one else really does. Right. So he's a true original and he's a true musical drummer in the sense that he knows composition, he knows uh, songwriting, he knows production. So... I think he's a great package, and he's a great vocalist, which is something that any drummer should also be a singer. Because if I'm hiring a drummer, he's got to sing. Right. Period. Unless he's, you know, that's, I need a drummer that's got vocals. So that's really important. Uh, now, the other guy is Chuck Tree, who I knew about before he knew about me, because Chuck was a le- legendary drummer and skateboarder in Philadelphia when I was a kid, and he still is. Mm-hmm. The other kids coming up. I just, I don't know if you knew that, did you know that he was the first African-American to ever be on the cover of Thrasher magazine? I mean, I didn't know that fact, but I knew that he's one of, probably one of the first African-American pro skateboarders, you know? Yeah. That's pretty awesome. He just put it up on, on Instagram. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, di- I didn't realize that either, and he put it up there, and I was like, wow, that's pretty... I was like, this is awesome. On He was the first African-American and the f- and the last black-and-white photo, uh, the bl- last black-and-white Thrasher cover, which is pretty no, cool, so too. That's so. Great. so, yeah, so Chuck, um, of course, I knew about him when I was coming up, and he was a really nice guy. A couple of times I had met him as a, as a grommet, and I came back with my band in 1992 to play the Philadelphia Music Conference where we opened up for the Roots at Revival, who also were trying to get a record deal. Of course, we got a deal first and started recording at Studio 4, Rock House Records, and Chuck Treese was playing, actually played on a number of my first demos. Uh, later, he played 
with, uh, I later I had fired Jim and Jeff from the Stretch Sauce in 96, and Chuck and I started a band called the Philly Cartel, which had Mike Tyler as well in it, who we mentioned earlier. Now, Chuck, just to break down what I think Chuck is as a musician, Chuck's an amazingly talented musician, and it goes without saying that he has widely surpassed what you associated with, with like, you know, culturally with like African-American drummers by being one of the first members of the Black Rock Coalition and being a punk rock drummer uh, and a skateboarder, which obviously was more of like a white kid thing than a black kid thing. Mm-hmm. And that was typical of Philadelphia, which I had a line in one of my raps that went, white kids rapping, black kids playing rock. Jeez, they fried on and party on the whole block. <laughs> you know, but, uh, so Chuck was always, and, and that's part of the, and this is part of the crucial thing why I was discovered out of Philadelphia, because Philadelphia has a very unique thing which happened a lot about music and skateboarding, which was this melting pot in the city when I was a kid and Chuck was a kid. There were these inner city parties and there was skateboarding and graffiti and live music and the beginning of DJing and hip hop. And it was all these kids from the city that were black and white. And we all grew up together going to public school in Philadelphia or the friend schools. And these kids were all different people that are now big people, whether that's me, uh, Espo, the street writer, you know, Chuck Trees and all mm-hmm. those people. So Chuck was kind of, and then he was on the first wave of people that came to that show revival. And I walked in the revival to my show and there was Chuck Trees was one of my idols coming to see me and being like, yo, your demo's for shit. No, I want to play on it. I want to be with you in the band. And then later we've, we've gone on to write and record and Chuck's been on many, many of my records. And we had a side project called Lottery, um, mm-hmm. which was a two-piece. Chuck, to me, as a drummer, I mean, he has so many tricks and so many unique um, drumming bits. And he's so influenced by both hip-hop, but has that rock sensibility um, and punk rock thing. To me, it's another amazingly talented, original, and a lot more technically skilled than... My drummer, I mean, if you're, I mean, honestly, like, Chuck's technique way surpasses Jeff. It's not a co- competition between them, between them. They love each other. Right. But right. I think I can both agree that Chuck's more highly technically skilled, and he just has so many tricks in his bag. Every time you see him, he's doing something that you're just like, oh, my God, he'll, you know, it just makes you drop your guitar. Right. Um, and he can, and just playing with him, for the years that we did it often, the, the lottery and the two-piece was just, we have had so many epic shows, just drums and guitar. And I love doing that with Chuck because he also is a singer. Singer, He's able to exactly grasp onto what I do. He's got the pocket. Um, I've always enjoyed playing with Chuck because he knows exactly the type of hip-hop that I listened to growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. And being an African-American from West Philadelphia, He's where it was all coming out of. He's one step closer to the original sound than I am. So to me, it's an honor to get to play with him, that style of music. Nice. It kind of validates what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Chuck continues to display those things, originality, work ethic, uh, skill level, and, um, yeah, I mean, to me, the only thing wrong with Chuck's career is that he's not, you know, hasn't been paid like a gazillion bucks because he's helped so many people along the way from me to Santo Gold to The Roots to Scott Storch. And the list goes on and on and on to the people that he's helped bring up and Michael Franti and, um, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, um, he continues to be a champion for up and coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That uh, some people have made the big time and some people haven't. And sometimes I say, I think Chuck should have joined, you know, a band that was going to be super successful because yeah. that goes on and on. That list goes on and on from slightly stupid to the movement to, I, I can't even name as many people as he's helped come up. Um, and I, um, but you know, that being said, he continues to, he's just a wonderful person to follow on Instagram because you see so much stuff that he's working on and he's constantly working in the studio. Dude, he's always got something every going day. on. Every day. Every day. And yep. there's no unbelievable music knowledge and work ethic and love of music. You know, this is a guy that I just can never say enough about it. And I always want him to get the maximum amount of respect to this. Yep. And not only that, like, he's, you know, the nicest dude on the planet, too. So, uh, I mean, he's so humble that it almost he needs to just stop with that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's the man. Chuck is the man. And I'll put, I'll link up to, uh, to the interview I did with Houseman and with, with Chuck in the uh, show notes for this interview so that people can check it out. And one last thing, I, I, we got to mention your tour because you guys are on tour, uh, I guess you start in December, you guys are going to be in Hawaii and then you guys are going to be all over the place. I mean, you guys, you'll be in St. Louis, Indianapolis, Detroit, New York, Brooklyn, Philly. I mean, you guys are all over the place. Um, so, the um this so this tour is to is supporting which which record now sugar uh right now well well we did our tour support uh in support of love safe today which right. is the last record so this tour is our winter tour and i think uh, what i'm trying to do on this tour is we kind of now will just do a tour which as a respect, a retrospective of our whole career, really focusing on the hip hop blues side of what we, what we do. Mm-hmm. And this show is going to be a high energy show. It's going to dig deep in the catalog, but also play the hits. And this tour goes coast to coast. And uh, yeah, it's called the Hip Hop Blues Winter Tour, and that's what we're going to be bringing to it. So I like it. Be, you know, last, we like to flip it up. Like last year, we did a specific show, which was playing the whole new record. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of it was a short request set. Right. Uh, this 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 tour won't. We'll, we'll be happy to entertain people's requests. We won't promise them, but we'll. I think we're going to get a show that anybody that's touched base with us along the whole twenty four years is going to hear songs from every record and hear the hits. So I think this is a real feel good tour, and it's going to be a party. Nice man. I, I mean, I'm definitely gonna come out. I don't know which. I don't know if I'll come see you in Philly or in Brooklyn, or maybe I'll come see you at the Bowery. Actually, that's a lot. That's easier for me to get to. So, but I would definitely. Yeah, well, you should. 
And uh, get tickets soon for that one because that one sells out pretty fast. Oh, well. and, um, yeah, yeah, it's got some great rooms, uh, two hits in New York, and the uh, big show in Philly, so it should be a blast. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And, gee, uh, thank you for, for taking the time to chat with me. I appreciate it. Like, I, it's sort of, sort of come full circle. Like, I've no, I know your drummers. I've been listening to you, like I said, since I was in high school. So uh, great to actually sit down and chat music with you, man. And uh, safe travels now and also on the tour. And, again, thank you for, for doing this. I really do appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. Appreciate it, brother. Yeah, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, All right. Bye. Thanks, G. See you. There you have it, the one and only G-Love. For everything that we talk about, for links to the tour dates, to uh, and also links to Chuck Treese's interview, Jeff Clemens' interview, and everything else we talk about in the podcast, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 223. And I'll be back on Monday with another session. And until then, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.